0: Good morning, church. It is so good to see so many of you once more. Thank you again for allowing me to come back and to share with you God's Word. This morning we'll be in the book of 1 Timothy. We'll be looking at the end of chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 16. Let me read. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, taken up in glory. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for another opportunity and another day to open your word. Father, the reason we come to your word is because there is nowhere else where we can go. For in your word is life. In your word is truth. Therefore, Father, I ask that you would use me as an instrument in your hand to accurately exposit the truth of your word. Father, we pray for the hearts of those who do not know you yet. Pray that you would open their eyes, open their ears. May they hear the truth. May may the double-edged sword of your word penetrate down deep and cut open the heart of flesh and stone and sin. May they see their desperate need for a Savior. May they come to him and rejoice in him alone. We ask this in your name. Amen. Perhaps, perhaps you have heard this story about Alexander the Great. During one of his many battles, he came across a young soldier, a young man, who was paralyzed with fear. In fact, when the battle, uh, he was so afraid of what was happening during the battle that he ran away in a cowardly act of retreat. When the battle was finished, uh, he was captured and arrested and brought before Alexander the Great. Full of shame and fear, he was standing in front of the king. And Alexander looked at the soldier and said to the young man, Son, what is your name? And the boy replied, My name is Alexander. Alexander the Great said, Well, son, You either change your name or change your conduct. You see, the point of that story is that a young man carried the great name of the king, and yet his behavior and his conduct did not reflect the great name which he carried. This is the message, in fact, about us Christians as well. As those who have been adopted into the household of God, we are carrying the name of Jesus Christ. And the question, therefore, for us, does our conduct, does our behavior match the name which we carry? Do we live in such a way that points and testifies to the one who has died for us? Or do we need to change our conduct in order to more accurately reflect that. In fact, as you will see, that is the theme and point of our passage today. Those of you who are taking notes, I have three things that I would like to point out in our passage. In writing to young Timothy, there's three specific things that he wants to highlight for Timothy about us, the church, the redeemed ones. And the first thing that is writing to him about is the church's conduct. It is of utmost importance for Apostle Paul how believers behave themselves in the household of God. Secondly, he is writing to Timothy about the church's function. What is the purpose of the church? What is the task of the church that has been given to it by God? And then finally today we will finish by looking at the church's message. There's not only a certain conduct and there's not only a certain function, but there's a specific message which the church of God has been given. That is the text before us. So let's begin by looking at the first point, the church's conduct. Verse 14 of our text here highlights to us what many commentators have described as the purpose and the thesis of the letter of 1 Timothy. Here we see that Apostle Paul was away from Timothy. He was not in Ephesus. Some believe that he was either still in prison in Rome or on his way from Rome wanting to make it to Ephesus. In fact, we never know if Apostle Paul made it to Ephesus again. And yet, that which he wanted to communicate to young Timothy was so important to him that he's telling us here in verse 14 that if I make it or if I don't, if I delay, I want you to know this. I am writing these things so that you might know, so that you may know. That which is Apostle Paul is highlighting is of great importance. And while Timothy is the primary subject to whom Paul is writing, the infinite mood of the verb here in the Greek is actually telling us that the application is not just for Timothy, but it's actually applied to the broader context of all believers. And most likely this letter, like other church epistles, was designed to be read in the church in the context of everyone. And therefore, what he is writing here is not just for Timothy, but it was to the whole church in Ephesus. And I may even go further to say it is also to us today as believers. That which Paul is highlighting here for Timothy is for all of us. He doesn't just care about Timothy's conduct. He doesn't just care about the church in Ephesus' conduct, but he cares about the church of God. All of us universal church believers, those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. So look what he says here. He says, if I delay, I want you to know how one ought to behave, or some of your translations say, conduct themselves in the household of God. This Greek word for behave or conduct is anastrapho, which actually translates as one's life or even one's speech. Apostle Paul was so concerned with how believers live their life in the church context that he is writing to them, telling them that there's a specific way as we who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus ought to live in. There's a specific way in which we ought to walk in. There's a specific way in which our speech, our conduct, our behavior needs to reflect the one who has saved us. If you ever study the letter to, 1 Timothy, uh, to Timothy, you will see that the conduct and behavior is seen throughout the letter. Once again, I believe it is the purpose and the theme of why Paul is writing. In chapter 1, if you just want to skim here with me in your Bibles, in chapter 1, Paul is writing about the proper conduct in how believers live and in what they teach in the church. It was important to Paul how the believers in Ephesus were living and what was being taught in the church. In chapter 2, Apostle Paul was concerned with the proper conduct of men and women in the church. He writes what men ought to do and what they are not to do, and then he writes what women ought to do and not to do in the context of the church. Chapter 3, he writes to them about the proper conduct of leaders, about overseers and deacons. There's a specific conduct that the Word of God spells out for those who are in the church. Chapter 4 in the letter to 1 Timothy speaks of proper conduct in the midst of relationships and in partaking food. And then even more specifically, he writes of the proper conduct to young Timothy, to a young overseer, and how he is to behave and what he is to do in the church. Chapter 5 is the proper conduct towards those who are older or towards the widows. There's a specific way in which the church of God is to treat the older and the widows in the church. And then finally, chapter 6 of the letter to Timothy speaks of the proper conduct towards masters and servants and those who are wealthy in the church. In case you haven't got the point yet... Paul cares about the proper conduct and proper behavior of believers in the church. So at this point, the proper question would be, why does he care so much? Why is it important how believers act and how they conduct themselves in the household of God? To answer that question, it is helpful for us to see how Paul describes the church how he speaks of the church here in our passage. Look with me first here. He describes the church as the household of God. Paul does not speak of the church as being a physical structure, but he actually speaks of the church being a family, a living, breathing organism. And therefore, the church is a household of God. It's the Greek word oikos for household or family. In fact, if you look just a few verses above in his description of what an overseer must be in verse 4 and 5, he says he must manage his own household, same Greek word oikos well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own oikos again, household, how will he care for God's church? It seems that in Apostle Paul's mind, he understood the church to be a family. He understood the church to be a household, a living, breathing organisms, And that's why our conduct matters. Brothers and sisters, when we were saved... We were adopted into a family. We were adopted into the household of God. And guess what? Whose household is it? It's God's. It is his family. And as the head of the church, as the one who's in charge of this family, he determines how people in his family act and behave. He is the one who spells out our conduct. We as believers don't get to pick and choose how we act in God's household. You know why? Because it is God's household. It is not our family. In the same way, if you came into my home and I invited you in, you don't get to set the rules for what I do in my household. You don't get to tell my kids when they go to bed or how many candies I can eat or my kids because it's my household, my rules. In the same way, this is God's household, and he has specific conduct written out for his children. In fact, if you remember in the book of Ephesians, when Paul was writing there in chapter 5, he says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up. For us, we have been adopted into the family of God, and therefore our conduct, our behavior now as those who've been adopted need to needs to reflect the one who has adopted us, the head of our family, the head of our household. Look with me also at the second way in which Paul describes the church here. he not only calls the church the household of God, but he also calls it the church of the living God. The Greek word there for church is ekklesia. You are familiar perhaps with this term. Literally translated, it means the gathering of the called out ones. Those who have been separated or taken out from something and have now assembled together. It's the assembly of the called out ones, the assembly of the redeemed ones. And therefore, what we have here today is actually a gathering of those who have been called out of darkness, called out of sin, and have been brought into his marvelous light, have been redeemed. And as a result, we no longer pick and choose how we live, Because as the called out ones, there's a specific expectation for us to live in such a way that reflects the one who calls us out. Philip Towner in his commentary says the privilege of being called out uh, to live in God's presence carries with it the responsibility to live a life worthy of the one who called us. God's calling of the Hebrews out of Egypt into association with him required them to be holy. And membership in the church of the living God makes the same demand. Brothers and sisters, we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. We have been called out. A church is a gathering of the called out ones. It's a gathering of those who have been redeemed, bought out from darkness with the great price of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, he is the one who now determines and gives us and commands to us the conduct, our behavior in which we ought to live. First Peter 1 Peter 1.15 speaks of this. But as he who has called you is holy, so you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. I have probably told you this illustration before, but if not, pretend like you're hearing it for the first time. In our Slavic culture, whether you're from Ukraine, from Russia, or from any former Soviet Union republics, our middle names were not randomly selected for us, but rather they were assigned to us by our father's name. So, for example, my middle name is Vitali Alexandrovich, meaning Vitali belonging to Alexander. My father's name is Alexander. In the same way, my grandpa, his name is Leonid, and so my dad's full name is Alexander Leonidovich, meaning Alexander belonging to Leonid. Therefore, when I grew up, everywhere I went, my conduct... Whether good or bad, I always carried the name of my father. I always walked around representing my father, Alexander. And therefore, my conduct had to be in such a way that I do not bring shame unto my father, Alexander. This is, in essence, what we see here. As those who bear the name Christians... We carry the name of Christ everywhere we go. And therefore, our conduct is a clear representation of the one who has saved us. Therefore, there's a specific way in which those who have been redeemed and called out ought to live. Brothers and sisters, don't get this confused. What I'm telling you here is not to live in a certain way so that you might be saved. No, no. This conduct here is not for those who are not saved. This conduct here speaks of those who have already been saved. This is a conduct of those, you have been saved, so live in this way. Do you understand the difference? Right? We're not telling you what the Catholic Church says to where if you do these things, if you behave in this way, you will receive good things and you will be saved. No, that's not what this passage says. Rather, this passage says you have already been saved. You are already in the family of God. And therefore, as a member of the household of God, there's a specific responsibility, a specific behavior, a specific contact that you now are commanded to because you bear the name of Jesus Christ as the one who has been saved by him. This brings us to the second point in our notes. It is important how we behave in the household of God because there's a specific function given to the household of God. There's a specific responsibility, a specific task given. Look here with me in verse 15, the second part of it. For the church is a living church of God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Here Paul continues with his building illustration, and this language that he uses is not accidental. You see, in the city of Ephesus was the well-known temple for the goddess Artemis, or as some might know her as the goddess Diana. And this well-known temple had 127 pillars going all the way around it. And therefore, those who lived in the city of Ephesus were very familiar with what a pillar is and what a pillar does. The job of a pillar in an architectural and engineering purpose is to uphold the roof. Pillar supports the weight of the roof that is being put on top of it. So... From that case, we know what a pillar is. And in fact, most of you have seen a pillar in one way or another, even though most of the times, in our case, pillars are usually mostly decorative. In that sense, especially in Ephesus, pillars had a specific task. They upheld the roof of a structure. Now, how many of you know what a buttress is? Buttress is something that is a little bit less familiar to us. However, I was thankful today when I pulled up to your beautiful building to see that your building actually has buttresses outside of it. Here's my little visual laminated illustration here. There are hanging buttresses. Your church has a buttress that is actually connected to the building. So if you want to, after the service, go outside and see, it's a specific, it looks like a column that is protruding from the side of your building, but it has a specific purpose. While the pillars hold the roof from within, a buttress supports the walls from the outside from collapsing under the weight of the roof. And therefore in essence a pillar and a buttress has the same task. They uphold, they support the roof. The pillar does it from within, the buttress does it from the outside to make sure that the walls don't just go like this under the weight Of the roof. Now, that is the purpose of a pillar and buttress in a building. The purpose of a church, when Apostle Paul applies it, is for a church to be the pillar and the buttress of the truth. Meaning, the church's function, the church's task is to uphold the truth and to support the truth from falling over and folding in or colliding or collapsing from heresy or false teaching. John Stott in his commentary does well to describe this. He says, indeed, as a pillar lifts the building high while remaining themselves unseen, so the church's function is not to advertise itself, but to advertise and display the truth. And then the buttress, as it holds it firm, so it does not collapse under the weight of false teaching. And as a pillar, it is to hold it high, so it is not hidden from the world. To hold the truth firm is the defense and confirmation of the gospel. To hold it high is the proclamation of the gospel. And so what we have here as the task and the function of the church is we are to uphold the truth, lift it for the whole world to see, and then as a buttress of truth, we are to protect it from falling over itself, from protect it from heresy and other false teaching. That is the simple and unique definition that Apostle Paul gives for the task and the purpose of the church. We are to uphold, proclaim, and protect the truth of the gospel. Now, I need to pause here because the Catholic Church loves this verse. They love it and they use it for their own purposes. They say, yes, it's true. The church gets to decide what the truth is. They believe that being the pillar and buttress means they they get to decide what the truth is. But the pillar and buttresses are not the foundation. Pillars and buttresses don't get to decide what the truth is. The sole purpose of the church is not to pick and choose what the truth is. The sole purpose of the church is to uplift the truth that has already been given to it. It's to support and protect the truth which has already been given to us In the word of God, the pillar and buttress of truth is the task of the church in protecting that which has already been given to us. And you know why? Because the foundation of the church has already been spelled out to us book of Ephesians, once again, as Apostle Paul was writing to them, Ephesians 2, 19 through 21. There he says, you are members of the household of God. Build on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Brothers and sisters, what is the foundation of the apostles and prophets? Right here, apostles and prophets. This is our foundation. This is what our church is built upon. And then we continue reading Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone he is the center he is the one on whom the whole thing is structured upon therefore the church is built on christ it's built on the word of god and our task as the pillars and buttresses is to live that truth to uphold it support it and protect it from evil and from heresy that is our task that is our wonderful responsibility And notice, notice that he says the church is the pillar and buttress of truth. Apostle Paul didn't say that the church is the pillar and buttress of hope. Or the church is the pillar and buttress of love. In fact, if you were to go on Google today and to search what is the purpose of the church, you're going to find a lot of unique answers. Some believe that the church should be the hospital for the sick and the needy. There is a place and a time for church to do that. Some believe that the church should be just the one that uh, is the pillar and buttress of love, and it just spreads love to the needy and and the sick and those going through difficult times. And there is a place and a time for church to do that. But according to the Word of God, the primary function, the number one task of the church is to be the pillar and buttress of truth, Brothers and sisters, you take the truth away from the church, and it is no longer a church. If we're simply going to be a pillar and buttress of love and hope and, and good deeds, we're no better than Salvation Army or the Red Cross. Organizations that do a lot of good things, but they don't have the truth which they're uplifting and protecting. And therefore, when Paul is writing to Timothy in Ephesus, he says our task is to promote, protect, and uplift, and to support the Word of God. That is the task of the church. That is its purpose. Now, do you see why the first point was so important for the second point? Do you see why our conduct is important for our function and our task? If we are to promote, uplift, and support the truth, Our behavior needs to reflect the truth which we're promoting and supporting. Otherwise, we're hypocrites. Otherwise, we're heresies. uh, We're heretics. We're, We're walking around and saying, you know what? This is what we're uplifting, but our life is not reflecting the truth which we're uplifting. That's why these things in this text are so intertwined one to another. Our message, which we are truth and, and the thing which we're supporting and protecting, needs to ref, uh, be reflected in our behavior and our conduct. That's why Apostle Paul stresses the conduct and behavior of believers so much throughout this letter, because we have a task, an important function to do. Our purpose here as a church of God is to be a pillar and buttress of truth. And in order to do it well, there's a specific conduct. There's a specific thing that we are called to do and live and say and speak and walk in as those who have been redeemed by God. Bill Kynes in his commentary says, This is why Paul is so concerned about how believers in church behave. Our lives are a part of the message of the truth that we are called to proclaim to the world if our lives are no different than those around us, if the gospel had no impact on the way we relate to each other, on the way we handle our money, on the way we go about our work, on the way we approach trials, or even the way we approach death, then why should anyone believe what we have to say? Our lives and our message needs to be connected. This brings us to the third and final purpose uh, or point. And here, Apostle Paul says, the church not only has a specific conduct, the church not only has a specific function, but the church also has a specific message. And this is also connected, brothers and sisters, to what we just said. As a church, we don't get to pick and choose what the truth is. Truth has already been given to us. You've probably heard this illustration as a, as a pastor, as a preacher, it is not my job to pick the truth that I'm, I'm going to present to you. My job is simply to deliver the truth from the great chef himself without messing it up to you, without adding my own salt or sugar and trying to add my own spice to it. My job is to bring the message which has already been given to us and to bring it to you, to your ears and to your hearts without messing it up. That is the function of the church as well. We have a specific message. We don't get to pick and choose. It's not a Thomas Jefferson Bible where we cut out the passages which we don't like and then we just preach the ones we like and the ones we don't we ignore or, or you know, put blinders to. We are to bring the word of God to the people of God so that their conduct can reflect that who they were saved by so that then their purpose as the pillar and buttress of truth can coexist together. And so the third point here is that church has a specific message. And look how Apostle Paul, he he starts going into a cheer almost, or a song here. In fact, in your Bibles, you might see that the text here is uh, separated into a new paragraph. A lot of the commentators believe it's a specific uh, song, perhaps, or a specific hymn, or a confessional statement that was used in the church of that day. He says, "...great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness." King James Version has it this way, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Another translation says, beyond all questions, the mystery of godliness is great. What is this mystery? When Apostle Paul uses the term mystery, and he loves this term mystery throughout his letters, he's not speaking of something like a puzzle or something that hasn't been solved yet. Rather, mystery is always a reference in the Word of God to that which was previously hidden and now has been revealed to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. The mystery of godliness is the Lord Jesus himself. He is the great mystery of godliness. That which was previously hidden, that which scribes and Pharisees and others and prophets have long looked into wanting to see what will happen. How will this mystery of godliness come about? In the New Testament, we have seen that it has been revealed now in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so to give it to you in a simple term, what is the church's message? What is this mystery of godliness? It's Jesus Christ. That is our message. The church has a single theme, a single topic, a single truth which we are to uplift and to uphold as the pillar and buttresses. We are to preach Christ, Him crucified. Him resurrected, and Him ascended into glory. That is the message that the church has. That is the task given to us here. And yet, I want you to see here, and this took some research on my part, that this cheer, this uh, this unique saying, great is the mystery of godliness, was not accidental. Paul knew his audience. Paul knew the context of those whom he is writing to. In fact, if you study the New Testament, if you study the book of Acts, you will know Apostle Paul did not make many friends in the city of Ephesus. In fact, I I encourage you for the sake of time, I won't read Acts 19, but go home and look over Acts 19. Remember that temple of Artemis that I told you about with 127 pillars? Well, that temple was the main money maker in the city of Ephesus. They were people, there were coppersmiths in particular, who would make little trinkets, little souvenirs of goddess Artemis, of goddess Diana, and then they would sell them to tourists and visitors and people in the city. Well, when Apostle Paul uh, came to the city of Ephesus and started proclaiming the gospel, the truth of the message which he was proclaiming was so successful that the business of trinket makers in the temple of Diana plummeted. All of a sudden, the coppersmiths, who would make a lot of money selling little uh, little, uh, idols of Artemis, now had no business because Apostle Paul told them that those idols were false and that there's only one true God. And you know what happened in Acts 19? They were so enraged. They were so upset at Apostle Paul's message that we read in Acts 19. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out. Listen, this is what they were crying out. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And then they keep going. If you read in Acts 19.33, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But they recognized that he was a Jew. And for about two hours, listen here, for two hours, they were crying out with one voice. Do you know what they were crying out for two hours in Ephesus? Ephesus. For two hours they were crying out with one voice because they were so upset at the message of Christ. They were so upset at Apostle Paul and the gospel message which he proclaimed. For two hours straight they were crying out with one voice. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. To put it in other words, this was their city cheer, if you will. This was something that they were wanting to proclaim to every outsider who came in and said something negative. And so Apostle Paul knew his audience. And so he says, okay, you want to sing Great is the Artemis of Ephesians? I'm going to come and write a letter to you and I'm going to sing Great is the Mystery of Godliness. Apostle Paul knew that Artemis was fake and idle, false worship, and we as believers, as a church, we have something greater to cheer about for two hours straight. We have the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore this phrase, great is the mystery of godliness, is not accidental, but rather it's a a specific indictment on the city of Ephesians. Those who had banners, great as the Artemis of Ephesians. He said, we as the church have the banner of proclaiming Christ. And so look at the words of this hymn, if you will. Before we look there, let me read to you one more quote. John MacArthur says, The mystery of godliness or godlikeness is this. There is now revealed one who is godly. Or even more specifically, there is the revelation of God. This is a common confession of all believers in the living church. We don't say great is Diana of Ephesians. We don't even say great is the pastor. We say great is godly one who is now revealed to us in Christ. That is our message. That is our banner. We proclaim Christ and him crucified. And then look with me at the words of this hymn at the end of verse 16. This one is Jesus who was manifested in the flesh. The very thing that we will be celebrating here in just a few weeks. I know December came quickly. But in a few weeks, we will be celebrating the one, the mystery of godliness, who was manifested in the flesh, the incarnate Son of God. And then this Jesus was later vindicated by the Spirit. This speaks of his resurrection. This is the very thing that we celebrate on Easter. That this one not only came in the flesh and died on the cross, but on the third day he was vindicated. His sacrifice was accepted by God because he was spotless and blameless. And so he was vindicated by the Spirit. Now, this third line has uh, had a lot of controversy by commentators, but it, it works either way. It says this Jesus was seen by the angels. Some think that this term "angels" in Greek it actually better translates as messengers, meaning that it refers to the disciples and the apostles. Because remember, after Jesus was uh, after he was resurrected, he came and he was revealed to the apostles. He came to Peter and to John and then to the rest of the disciples. So that is one translation. But even if that means to the angels, that is true also. When Jesus was resurrected, he was revealed to the angels. There were witnesses to his resurrection, to put it another way. Let's keep reading. And then what happened after he was revealed to the witnesses? What did those disciples, what did those apostles do? He was proclaimed among the nations. They took the message of the gospel, they took the message of the truth, and they brought it to all the nations. And what was the result of this message? Let's keep reading in verse 16. The result of that message, the result of that proclamation, is that those in the world believed in Him. The pillar, as the pillar and buttress of truth, we have a wonderful message, and it is not. Us who will make people believe, but it is the message. Our job is to plant and water, plant and water, but God will cause the growth. And so as the planting and watering took place throughout all the world, and as it continues to be done so today, God is bringing about the growth. And then look finally what happened there. He was taken up in glory with full promise and assurance that he will return one day for his church again. Brothers and sisters, This is a simple passage with profound application. As those who have been redeemed in Christ, there's a certain conduct, a certain behavior that we are now called to live. You know why? Because it's not our church. It's not whoever's going to be your future pastor's church. No, this is the church of the living God, and He is the one who determines and commands a specific conduct in his household and the reason why this conduct is important is because we have a specific function and a specific task to uplift to uphold to support the truth and what is the truth the truth is jesus christ he is the mystery of godliness which we proclaim he is the one that we will not only celebrate in a few weeks here but he will be the one that we will worship for all eternity the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the writing of Apostle Paul who was filled with your spirit, that he was so excited to write about this that he couldn't even wait until he would make it back to the church in Ephesus. Father, I pray that these words would be applied in our own lives. May we see the importance of our conduct Because of the one who has saved us. Knowing that we now bear the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you also for the task and the responsibility that we have. Not to determine what the truth is. But to uplift and support the truth that has already been given to us. And this truth is Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one that we proclaim. He is the one that we worship. He is the one that we testify to the world around us.